0: I bid you a very pleasant good morning. Uh, I'd ask you to take your Bibles out. Go ahead and put your bookmark, if you would, in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is where I'd like to study this morning. Uh, I've not taken the opportunity to, uh, uh, first of all, say thank you for the invitation to be here. Uh, We've uh, been blowing and going pretty hard so far this morning, so uh, I'm grateful to the elders for the invitation to come back. Uh, It's been six years. It's hard to believe It doesn't seem like like that long to me, but uh, it it has, and uh, it's always an honor to be asked to go preach. It's especially an honor to be asked to go back somewhere uh, and preach, so you've either forgotten uh, or uh, got a little something out of the first time around, and so uh, I'm honored to be here. I hope that our uh, efforts this week will be of some help to you. If I can help you at all, uh, don't hesitate to call on me. Uh, We'll give you a little uh, information about what we're going to try to do this week. Uh, Tomorrow night we're going to study from Romans, and uh, so if you're going to be here, uh, I would encourage you, if you want to kind of do a little homework, uh, to read maybe the first five chapters, eight chapters if you're really uh, ambitious. Uh, We're going to look at some of the principles that are going on there. Uh, On Tuesday evening, we're going to do some stuff for parents and grandparents, and so... uh, uh, if you're uh, trying to raise your kids or trying to raise your kids' kids or your kids have kids and you're still trying to raise your kids who are raising their kids, uh, so that pretty much covers everybody at some point. Uh, or if you're helping somebody else raise their kids and you don't have any of your own and you, because you don't have any of your own, you think you understand everything about raising kids, uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to work on a little of that Tuesday evening. Uh, Wednesday evening we're going to do some stuff from Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, about local congregational work, and then uh, Thursday evening, uh, we're going to talk about the Thief on the Cross uh, a little bit. And so basically, Monday and Thursday, we're going to try to do some things that will hopefully not only help those of us that are already Christians, but if you're studying with someone, or if you're trying to prepare to study with someone, or if you have somebody that's not a Christian... Uh, that you hope to bring to the meeting, uh, I would encourage uh, Monday or Thursday probably going to be the best nights for that. And so hopefully the things we talk about this this week will be uh, helpful to you. Uh, And then let me offer my greetings from the group at home. About a year ago, uh, Beaumont got uh, a little shower. Uh, We got 60 inches of rain in three days over three counties, and that's... uh, it's hard to fathom anywhere you live, uh, but uh, we had about 18 families that uh, were severely affected, brethren from all over, brethren from here, visitors that are here, uh, sent money and encouragement and help uh, to our group, and uh, there's no way to, to ever say thank you enough for the kindness that uh, so many folks uh, offered to, to the Christians in, in at Northwest, and so uh, all I know to do is say thank you uh, from the bottom of our heart for the kindness that you showed us uh, at a very difficult time uh, in our lives, and things are well uh, at this point. So, uh, okay, uh, let, let's move on and, and study a little bit. I know that's why we're here this morning, and I understand that I have unlimited time uh, at this point, so uh, kick your shoes off, get comfortable. Uh, uh, no, I'll try to be conscious of your time this morning. Uh, we live in an age of doubt, culturally. Uh, we mentioned a little bit as we study from Genesis this morning that uh, when you talk to people that aren't Christians, uh, when I was a kid growing up, and this would be the case for most of the older folks in, in, in the congregation, you, you had a pretty reasonable uh, chance that the person you were talking to about religion believed in God, believed in the Bible, had some fairly conservative views about things, but... We live in an age anymore where that's just not the case. Uh, most Christians or most Americans still believe in God. Strangely enough, ironically, and and actually, most Christians, most Americans still consider themselves religious people. And yet, it's not uncommon to talk to somebody who has doubts about uh, the Word of God, or they want to accept. Jesus, but they don't want to accept things that Jesus has to say about morality, about the home, about family, about sexual orientation, just all kinds of things. And and living in that culture uh, is much more, I think, probably like what we see in the New Testament uh, than has ever been, at least in the history of this country. Increasingly, we are becoming a secular nation. And because of that, when you talk to people about the Bible, there are certain things in the Bible that are problematic for folks, that are the subject of doubt. And one of those things are the miracles. Uh, I I read an article just this week where someone was talking about uh, wanting to believe in Jesus, but not really believing that Jesus did all that stuff. And and it's very much like studying from Genesis and, and having to accept that there was a discussion that took place between Eve and the snake, people have the same kind of reservations if you tell them, I believe Jesus really walked on the water or I believe Jesus really took five loaves and two fishes and fed thousands of people. They look at you like, that's just, that's crazy. How can you accept that? We, we're smarter than that in this day and age. Well, I'm going to tell you something, folks, that we're going to have to come to grips with if we're going to serve the Lord and if we're really going to put our trust in God. And that is the the things that we read that are supernatural in the Bible. The Passover and the angel destroying the firstborn of everyone and everything in Egypt unless there was blood on the doorpost. Unless we're willing to believe those things, we really have no basis for our faith. The truth of the matter is, it is the miraculous, it is the supernatural that proves that God is God and that He's not a man and that the Bible is not just another religious expression from a bunch of wise people, but it's the Word of God and that God imposed Himself upon this world and that at crucial times in the history of God's dealings with people, God suspended nature. He made the sun stand still. He parted water. Uh, he, He destroyed things. He brought a great flood on the earth. He, he, he healed people. He did all of these things to prove that He's God. And, and we recognize that as you go through the gospel accounts, the people that saw the things Jesus did were very much impressed with them. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 33, when Jesus walked on the water and then calmed the storm, the people who looked or who were there in that boat looked at him and said, "This, is, this has got to be the Son of God." And I tell you, I mean, there's a big old river right out here. You go out there in the middle of a big bad storm when the waves are raging and if you really want to have an experience, get out in the middle of it in a boat and then imagine somebody just saying, peace, be still. I came across Sabine Lake in a storm one time laying in the bottom of the boat hoping I didn't get struck by lightning and I wasn't wasn't so stupid as to stand up in the middle of it and go, peace, be still because I guarantee you nothing would have happened. But if Jesus did it and that happened, it would have impressed me. It would have impressed you, too. And it impressed those people. In John chapter 6, when he fed thousands, they believed that he was the prophet that was to come, the king. They were ready to take him right then and put him on the throne. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who at this point is probably not a believer, but he's grappling with the evidence, comes to Jesus and says, We know you're a teacher comes from God. No one can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. Those people when they saw the miracles were impressed. And John tells us at the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 20 that while Jesus did a lot of other things that weren't written, he says these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing have life in his name. For those of us who are Christians, believing in the supernatural, believing in the miraculous, believing that Jesus exercised the power of God is crucial to our trust in God. And in Matthew chapter 9, as we mentioned at the beginning of our class, God records for us a number of miracles that Jesus does in one day. And part of the reason that this is here is to help us to understand who He was, that He was God and that He had this kind of power. But but let me suggest to you that that there's another significance to the miracles of Jesus that I want to talk with you about for the rest of our time. And that is that the miracles of Jesus prove to us some things that are very practical and meaningful for those of us who are Christians. For instance, when you study the miracles of Jesus, you learn that Jesus has power. Power to forgive sin. We are here because essentially that is the message Of the gospel. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. And when you think about the concept of forgiveness, it is a concept that is uh, peculiar because it addresses something that we cannot do anything about. Uh, We can't undo guilt. And guilt's a terrible thing to carry around. I've got a younger sister. Denise is four years younger than me. And uh, growing up, she was my parents' favorite child. She, was, uh, she got everything. I got nothing. Uh, she was perfect. I was imperfect. I got all the whippings. I don't think she ever got a spanking in her entire life, mainly because she just never did anything wrong. And, and I distinctly remember one of my childhood memories, and why it's this one, I don't know, because there were ample others. I, I broke a lamp in our parents' living room. Uh, at, at doing something stupid, I'm sure. And, and, and I tried to blame my sister. I told my parents, you know, that Denise did this. Well, Denise never did anything bad. So they knew that I was lying. And so not only had I messed up, then I lied about it, and, and, and they called me on the carpet about it. it. It is the first time I can remember dealing with guilt and, and the ugly feeling. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about when you've messed up seriously and been caught and the feeling. the, the I mean, It's hard to describe that feeling. It's, it's an emptiness. It's a, a, an embarrassment. Uh, there's a shame attached. It's a, a helplessness. It's a hopelessness. Uh, and, and I will tell you something I learned real young. My dad could whip me. It didn't necessarily make me feel better. Now, he would tell me, you know, this is hurting me more than it's hurting you. Uh, it, the whipping didn't make me feel better, it didn't make the guilt go away. And I must tell you, as I've gotten older, I still feel that same thing when I mess up. Do you? I thought we had worked on this. Are you just not? Do you feel that? Let me ask you something. How do you fix that? You know, I think what we do more than anything else is we just... Time kind of makes it fade. But there's really not anything you can do to stop it, to, to, to change your moral state. And I don't know that we necessarily grapple with this the way that we ought to, but I think we should. Uh, if I was coming from the hotel to services this morning, I was speeding and I got pulled over for speeding, the police officer might have it within his power to say, you know what, Uh, I understand you're late for services, and you only have 30 minutes to speak, and so I want you to be there on time. And and so I tell you what, I'm going to let you go. I'm not going to give you a ticket. Uh, Would I be guilty? You, You know, it wouldn't change the fact that I had broken the law. And so how do you undo that? And the reality is you can't. Morally, once we find ourselves guilty, you can't become unguilty. And dealing with that is a dilemma for us. We appreciate the idea of forgiving consequences. I may not have to pay the ticket, but it doesn't change the moral state. And let me explain something that I think God would have us to appreciate. The real appeal of... Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, is innocence. Justification, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow night a little bit, justification is is not simply the forgiving of the consequences. It is innocence in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, where God's talking about the sacrifice of Christ and the fact that it was sufficient to forgive where all the animal sacrifices in the past were not. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31 and he talks about the fact that in the new covenant God will remember your sins no more. If it's not in the mind of God, folks, do you know what that practically means? It's as if it didn't happen. And when God looks at you and I, the power of the gospel, the appeal of the gospel is, He looks at us as innocent. I can't I can't fix that, but He can. And I must tell you, for a conscientious person, the alleviation of guilt and the frustration of failure and the fact that God can fix all that and change all that, that's the appeal. And when we talk to people about the gospel, folks, that's what we need to be talking about. Yes, we don't use instruments of music in our worship. Yes, we are careful with what we do with our contribution. Yes, we are clearly following the pattern of the New Testament. Yes, this distinguishes us from all these other religious groups out here. But the power of the gospel is in forgiveness, justification, innocence. Let me ask you something about that. How do you know? that you were forgiven by God when you obeyed the gospel. You know, we search for some kind of affirmation. And that becomes, I think, an obstacle for us from time to time. Some people will say, well, I know I was forgiven because I feel it. In fact, in our day and age, this, uh, this kind of touchy-feely, better-felt-than-told, charisma-driven mindset is, is what's driving people in religion. It, it's about the feeling. The, 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 the sensuality, not sexuality, sensuality that's what people want from religion. They, they, they want something the, 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 something exciting. And, I, and I've heard people say, "Well, I just know I just felt it inside. I knew I was forgiven when I accepted Jesus in my heart because I felt it. Well, let me tell you something about feelings, folks. <laughs> Don't take this as an insult, but I live with four women and, and emotion is not one of those things that I have learned to count on in life. I came home one day, and my oldest daughter, when she was about 12, was laying on her bed sobbing. And I literally thought somebody had died. Baby, what's the matter? She'd just shake her head. She wouldn't talk to me. Baby, what is the matter? you got to tell Daddy, what is the matter? She finally looked up, tears flowing down her cheeks, and said, I don't know what's the matter. And I just did. You know, this is my first child, my first daughter, and I just sat there for a minute. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I finally told her, hey, make something up, because I can't fix I don't know. (laughs) There's a point to me telling that. There are days when you're just kind of grumpy. There are days when you don't feel good. There are days when you feel great. Emotions and feelings are iffy things, and we're not even sure why we feel the way we feel sometimes. You get out of bed in a good mood, you get out of bed in a bad mood. You can have a terrible disease and have a wonderful attitude, or you can have nothing in the world wrong with you and act like you're going to die today. And so, you're going to tell me you're going to gamble your soul on I just feel that the Lord forgave me. Is that all we got? Do we have to have somebody else affirm it to us? Do you need the elders to come lay their hands on you? Do you, do you need a, a preacher to come and tell you, hey, it's all okay? Do you need a priest? There are a lot of religions that you got to have the priest to make sure and tell you it's all okay. You're forgiven by God. And until you have that affirmation, you don't know. How do you know? Well, you know because of faith. <laughs> People say, well, that's kind of a cop-out. No, it's not a cop-out. In Hebrews chapter 11, we are told that that faith is the substance, the the understanding, the, the foundation of things that we hope for and the evidence of things we don't see. I can't see forgiveness, but I trust that I have been forgiven. And then somebody says, well, you might as well just go on feeling. If you're going on trust, no. I have a real good reason to trust that God forgave me. You want to know why? Because Jesus got into a boat one day and crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now listen very carefully. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Do you appreciate Jesus is with the Pharisees contemplating the very thing we're contemplating right now? How do you know? Which would be easier, guys? Would it be easier for me to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven, or you get up and walk? Well, the answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You know why? You can't taste it. You can't touch it. You can't smell it. You can't see it. You, 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 you can't hear it. There is no empirical way to verify it. You can believe it to happen, or you can believe it didn't happen. But, but, but it's not solid. And so Jesus says to them, but I tell you what, let me show you power. So that you may know that I have the power to forgive his sins like I said I did. He turns to the man and says, arise, take up your bed and walk. And the man got up and walked away. And what Jesus does when He, when he performs this miracle is He tries to help us to understand that when God offers forgiveness when He tells us repent and be baptized, when He tells us to confess our faith, when He tells us to put our trust in Jesus Christ, when He tells us to to deny ourselves and, and follow Him, when we do those things, we can live with confidence that our sins are forgiven because Jesus proved He could do it. And He proved He could do it by the miracle that He did. And what are the Pharisees going to say to that? How are you going to disprove this? Somebody says, well, that doesn't prove anything. No, no, it proves everything. And you can't deny that it proves everything because Jesus connects them. Now, if you get to where you can cause a paralytic to rise up and walk and then you want to argue with the Lord, that's fine. But I don't have that power. You don't have that power. And when he had that power and said, this proves what I can do that you can't see, then we learn to trust and accept it. And I'm going to tell you something, folks, that's powerful. That's powerful. What that says to us sitting here is those of us who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ can walk around knowing full well that we stand innocent before God and it's not a pipe dream and it's not a better felt than told deal. It's real and God proved it to us. Are we not blessed? I want you to notice that the miracles of Jesus go on beyond that, however. They don't simply prove that Jesus has the power to forgive sins, which is powerful. But they also prove that Jesus has the power to give life. Uh, in John chapter 3 and verse 16, the God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son passage. Uh, people get so caught up sometimes trying to argue you know, whether this talks about what you got to do to be saved that they really miss the point. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is, I came so you can live forever. I came to set up a kingdom that offers... Uh, power beyond the parameters of this world. And you go read the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and that's exactly what they're discussing. They're discussing the spiritual realm and the kingdom of God and what Jesus came to do. He came to offer eternal life. And that is perhaps for people in the temporal realm, which we all are, The thing about Christianity that we want the most... Now, forgiveness has a great appeal. It's nice not to feel guilty. But I tell you, this idea of living forever... You know, I'll be 56 here in a couple of weeks, and some of you are looking, well, you're just a whippersnapper. And then some of the others are going, man, he's really old. And I tell you, what I'm learning at this point in my life is that it goes by in a real hurry, and I'm starting to feel the getting old part. I would agree with some of the, yeah, I'm feeling. And I know it's going to get worse. And I don't like it. I don't like anything that's happening to me. I don't like it that I can't see. I don't like it that I can't hear. I don't like it that I get winded. I don't like it that I can't hit the golf ball as far as I used to. There's just a lot of things I don't like about getting old. And I tell you, the worst part about getting old that most folks deal with is you know what getting old means? It means you're going to die soon. You know, these these young people here, there's a reasonable expectation that they may be around for another 50 or 60 years. I'm not going to be here that long. You can call it middle age all you want to, but there's not a lot of folks that are 110, 115 hanging around. So 55 is getting older. And there is something in us that reels from that, isn't there? Have you ever noticed that funerals don't draw big crowds What do you want to do today, honey? There's a good Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, good show, it's out. Oh no, there's a funeral going on down here around the corner. Let's go to the funeral. We don't like to think about death. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, we are told that all our lives we live subject to the fear of death. And I think there may be a lot of reasons for that. Personally, I think it's because we're made in the image of God and we weren't designed to die. Death is the consequence of our sin. It is not part of our original purpose. And so what God has done is He's provided for eternal life. And who doesn't want that? Who is not interested in living forever? In not dealing with death or the death of loved ones or the death of parents or the death of children? Or the... Who doesn't want that? But, but I tell you, it even goes beyond that. And here's the real appeal to me. You read John chapter 5, you read Romans chapter 8, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What what God offers is not just eternal life, but eternal life in a resurrected body. You know, Hebrews chapter 6 says the resurrection is one of the fundamental aspects of Christianity. And I don't know that we promote it perhaps as much as we ought. We're we're very attuned to it. We know we're going to be raised from the dead. We know our bodies are going to be changed. But but I want you to think about that for a moment and the implications of such. That helps us to understand what heaven's going to be like. You know, heaven's not going to be a float around on a cloud in a white robe with wings plucking on a heart forever. I mean, who wants that? Heaven's not going to be a misty, apparition, spirit world where you can see through everybody and things are just... God offers a concrete appeal for us, folks. And if you're at the age that you're looking at the end of your life or if you're like I am and I'm seeing my parents get older and get closer to that and every time the phone rings, the first thing you think of is, oh no. I'm going to tell you the appeal. The appeal is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the body that dies, that is sown, that is planted, is raised, but it's not raised the same. It's sown in weakness. A dead body can't do anything. It's raised in power. I I don't know what our bodies will be like, but they will not be subject to the limitations of our bodies now. It's sown, he says, in in dishonor. We, We hide our dead. We put them in the ground, we put them in a chamber. We we don't want to watch what decomposition does to the body of the people that we love. But the resurrected body, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is raised in glory. Glory is the word that's always used to describe the appearance of God. Our body will be made like unto His glorious body, Philippians chapter 3. Whatever is the substance of God will be the substance of our resurrected body. And it's raised, it's it's planted a, a physical body subject to this world. Your hair falls out, you get old, your knees hurt, things don't work. But it's raised a spiritual body. You know what the appeal of that is? you realize why we have a body now? We have a body to experience what God's created. Uh, driving home from Jacob's, Sarah's last night, came across the bridge. The sun was setting with clouds. It, I nearly stopped, but everybody were going, what is this nuthead Texan doing? Stopped in the middle of the bridge. So I could take some pictures. It was a gorgeous sunset. I have eyes so I can appreciate what God paints I have ears so I can appreciate the world God has created. I I can smell the things that God has created. I can taste a chocolate chip cookie. I I, I can experience the world around me. God gave me a body to do that. And I would propose to you that whatever heaven is, it is going to be a place that is to be experienced with a body. And, And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that future? to look forward to. Suddenly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, de- de- death has no victory over me. The grave has no victory over me. I know what there is that's coming. And I'm going to tell you, that's a good reason to get up every day and be faithful to the Lord, to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. And if you're not thinking in those terms, you're not thinking right. But here's the question. How do you know that's going to happen? You ever met somebody that's been raised from the dead? You know anybody walking around in a glorified, powerful, spiritual body? No. Can you prove God's going to do it? Yes. I have trust that God is going to raise my body because in Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus is teaching and talking to some Pharisees about a question that they have. Verse 18 says, While he spoke these things to him, a ruler came, worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, as did his disciples. Skip down to verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, the girl's not dead, but sleeping. And, and they derided him, they ridiculed him. You know, we look at them and go, well, she just swooned. She just, you know, they were, they were dummies. They lived years ago. They didn't understand what death was. Come on, give these people some credit. They knew when people died, this, this girl was dead. And that's why they're laughing at Jesus. And Jesus said, no, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Well, in the eyes of God, if you have the power to take a spirit and remove it from the body and then put the spirit back in the body, in the eyes of God, death, sleeping, what's the difference? And, and so Jesus puts them all out except for three of his apostles and the parents, and he takes the girl by the hand, and, and, and she, she rises. He, he, he commands her spirit to come back into her body. And that's something we can't do. Now We can kill ourselves. We can cause our spirit by doing physical harm to our body. We can cause our spirit to leave, but we can't cause our spirit to come back. And we sure can't change the nature of our body so that if our spirit does come back, it's no longer subject to this world. And yet that's the power that Jesus had. And it's not an isolated incident. In Luke chapter 7, He did that with a young man, the only son of a widow woman in Nain. In John chapter 11, He he raises Lazarus from the dead after He's been in the tomb for four days. In John chapter 20, He raised Himself. That's really impressive. You know, one of the, I think it's Luke that says that Jesus yielded up his spirit. And we'll say, they gave up the ghost. No, we don't. We don't control the spirit. But when it says of Jesus, he yielded up his spirit, I think what's being said there is when he was ready to die because he had authority, he left that body. And three days later, he came back into that body because he is God and can do so. Why did he do that? So you and I can get up every day and know, not wonder, not hope, know that God's going to raise us from the dead and raise us to live eternally in a body that is beyond our imagination, in a world that is beyond our imagination. Now, does that give you some hope to get up and live faithfully today? Let me offer you one more. There's actually three or four more in this passage, but... uh, I'm out of time. Uh, even though I was told I had unlimited time. They actually told me that, folks. I had unlimited time. <laughs> look, look at Matthew chapter 9, and I, I want you to appreciate the, the little verses that we skipped over. The, the point we've made thus far is the miracles of Jesus prove some things that you can't prove otherwise. That He has the power to forgive sins, and He has the power to raise the dead. Let me suggest to you that he proves what is the essential element that ties all this together, and that is that our faith is well-grounded. Now, I mean, we're trusting God to do this. We're making sacrifices in our lives. We're living in a certain way. We're not living like the rest of the world is, and we're doing that trusting that God's going to do these things. Well, how do we know that trust is well-founded? Hebrews chapter 11 says that uh, without faith without this trust in God it's impossible to please him and, and and that's what God wants from us yes he wants us to obey but he wants us to obey because we've come to understand who he is and what he can do and and what life is about and why he created us and what's in store for us and and we trust him and we trust him just like we learn to trust each other You get to know someone, if they tell you, I'm going to do this, you either believe it or don't believe it. And you believe it or don't believe it based upon your experience with them. And so faith comes by hearing the Word of God. We read about what He has done. We either accept it or reject it. And then when He tells us remarkable things, because we know who He is and what He is, we trust Him. And very few people will deny the need for trust, for faith. And I would propose, you know, people sometimes will say, well, you know, you you believe in works, salvation. You know, don't misunderstand this, but I believe in faith only. Because real trust in God is going to do anything He tells me to do because I really trust Him. I don't believe in belief only. There's a lot of people believe in God. James says the demons believe in God. But they don't have faith in Him. So the question is, how do I know that if I live my life trusting God, that it's going to be worthwhile? Well, because as Jesus is on His way to the ruler's house where His daughter has died, you'll notice in verse 20, suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of His garment, said to herself, if only I may touch His garment, I'll be made well. Jesus turned around and when He saw her said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. It's a a kind of a fascinating miracle. Luke records it in Luke 8 and and, uh, Mark Mark chapter 5. And they offer some details to us. But what I want you to see is that this woman is not following a regimen that God has set for her. Jesus didn't tell her, okay, do this, 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 and this, and I'll save you. She is convinced that Jesus has the power to, to heal her of this disease that she's wasted all of her money on to try to, to, to cure, and it's not been cured. And she is completely convinced that Jesus has the power to do that. And Jesus healed her because of that. That's what he tells her here. It's your faith that made you well. Now, the power wasn't in the faith. That's something that modern-day faith healers would have us to understand. Have you ever seen these exposés where somebody goes to a faith healer and the faith healer can't heal them? And they'll say, well, what happened? They'll interview the faith. What happened? Well, they didn't have enough faith. God didn't do it that way, folks. The power's not in the faith. Luke and Mark make it very clear that the power was in Jesus. And the power of forgiveness and the power of redemption and the power of resurrection, we understand is in Jesus. Who He exercises that power on are people that trust Him. And I know it because that's what He did with this woman. What He asks us to do is not the point. If we trust Him, we're going to do whatever He says. If He says, I want you to stack BBs, buddy, break them out. Let's start working on it. Because I trust Him. If He tells me to be baptized for the remission of my sins, get out of the way, I'm getting in the water. Because I trust Him. Because He told me I can do this and I will do it and that's what I want to do for you. And this is not a pipe dream. Jesus proved it to us. Why are you here right now? You could be sleeping, you could be off playing golf, you could be fishing, you could do whatever it is that you're doing. Why are you here commemorating something that happened 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world in the backwaters of the Roman Empire that most of the world rejects? Why are you doing that? Because you trust God. And every day of our lives, if we're being faithful to Him, we're living the way He asked us to live because we trust Him. And when I pillow my head at night, I have no doubt what's going to happen to me if I don't open my eyes in this world again. Because Jesus proved that if we trust Him, He'll take care of us. Now you can go back on your own and uh, look at the other two miracles that are recorded here. The healing of the blind man proves that Jesus has the ability to give us sight, illumination. The healing of the mute man teaches us that Jesus has the ability to give us the words to speak, to teach the gospel. But what I want you to understand is that if you reject the miracles, the power that Jesus manifested in this world to show He's really God, the power that Nicodemus saw when he said, no one can do the things that you do unless God's with him. That power wasn't just offered so that we could read the miracles and go, well, If he walked on the water, then he was really God. That power is also manifest so you and I can know about things we can't prove. And we can live our lives based upon that. I hope that will help you to go about your business living with some conviction that your faith is well-founded. We cannot dismiss the power of the Lord and what it means to us may well be that you're not a Christian, that you've uh, not thought about these kinds of things, or maybe you look at the Bible with some degree of suspicion. Uh, Please give it serious consideration. Please understand that the evidence is overwhelming for the veracity of the Scriptures and all of the miraculous that is in there, and please understand how important that is to your soul. If you need to change your life, do it today. If you need to obey the Gospel, do it now. If you need to make it right when you haven't been faithful, We could help you at all. We invite your response while together we stand and sing.